Hello and welcome. My name is Brent Weaver and this is the Digital Agency Show. The podcast that goes behind the scenes with today's top agencies and entrepreneurs. I am really glad you're here. And once again, it's time to transform your business mindset. Hey, agency owners. As someone that's run Google Ads for my own business, as well as on behalf of my clients, I know how time-consuming it can be to constantly be monitoring and optimizing those ads. I've got good news for you. There's a new tool called Optio that monitors your accounts for statistically significant patterns and suggests improvements that can push live to Google Ads in just a few seconds. Improvements help you manage keywords, test ads, and optimize bids. Get your time back. Let the machines do the heavy lifting. Check out optio.com slash yougurus and get started with a six-week extended free trial. That's optio.com slash yougurus. Hey, what's up, podcast listeners, digital agency owners. Welcome to another episode of the Digital Agency Show. I'm your host, Brent Weaver, and today we are hanging out with Scott Reeb, who formed Reeb Law as a full-service law firm that focuses on developing strong relationships with clients with one simple goal in mind, make your legal life easier. Rob has over 20 years of experience in business and estate planning. Reeb Law is out to revolutionize the legal industry by eliminating outrageous hourly fees. And I would like to say that Rob, I think, is officially the first lawyer that we've had on the program. So, Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brent. It's a privilege to be the first lawyer on any show. <laughs> We're 120 episodes or so deep, uh, so it's taken us a That's while awesome. to to build up the confidence to have a, have some legal advice on the show. But obviously, contracts, lawyer related stuff, client issues um, in terms of proposals and things like that probably comes up for our visitors, our listeners, quite a bit. So I've got I've got definitely some questions, some topics I want to run into today for our listeners to kind of understand some of the legal stuff around their business a little bit better. But, you know, Scott, give us a little bit of background uh, on you. Like what got you into to business law to begin with? And what are some of the things that you guys focus on? You know, my, my journey goes way back. I've been practicing law for 23 years and it goes back even further than that. In 91, I was selling phone systems after market products uh, in the Tulsa, Oklahoma market for a major telecom carrier and had a contract that I thought was great. And they decided to throw it out. And I learned a real tough lesson then that I couldn't, uh, I, didn't, I didn't understand everything I had done. And I probably signed something I shouldn't. Um, and even if I could win on the facts and law, I couldn't afford to fight that company. So I decided right then and there to not be in a situation again. And so I did what every normal person would do. I went to law school. (laughs) So yes, that does, that does seem like the logical progression there, like get screwed out of a contract and then decide that that's never going to happen again and go to uh, law school. Obviously that's a, uh, not something that normal people do. We just continue to get screwed on contracts. I think is, is usually what what we do. Right. Right. And so I went, went with the intention of getting back uh, and working in the business world. Spent a few years after law school at the University of Oklahoma, we were sooner, doing high-end litigation in the corporate world, which I thought was what I was supposed to be doing, but I really found out it didn't feel like I was helping anybody. And so over the first uh, few years of practice, I started transitioning to where I was working more with individuals and small businesses. And then that kept transitioning and then 15 years ago, we founded uh, my own firm, Reblaw. I've always been an owner of the firm except for the first, very first year of practice. So I've run small businesses for a long time. But we founded this one in 2005 and, and wanted to do it different. And so we started really trying to help people. 
And then uh, we started shifting our model in 2012 when I really kind of figured out that the traditional lawyer model is broken. And, and some, of, some of the people listening may be using a similar model with their clients, even though they're not lawyers, where you're building everything by the hour. And that model really, in, in my humble opinion, doesn't work. It puts you at odds with your clients. It has you trading time for dollars instead of selling value. And we want to we want to be creating value for our clients and then paying what that value is worth. And so we created a whole new subscription model for all of our small business owner clients and have been scaling that for the last seven years. Very cool. Well, I'm definitely interested to learn more about your model. Uh, and we, we can definitely talk about that today. But I, I am kind of curious about, you know, because we have a lawyer on the show today, you know, there's 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 a lot of situations, there's a lot of questions that I think come up for the typical agency owner from small shops to uh, larger shops. Probably one of the most common places that they come across, you know, contracts are going to be on the uh, the sales side. So I want to I want to kind of start there around like like what are some things that you know, people should be thinking about. I mean, I, I've, our agency had, you know, we went from having this like massive contract to like, you know, that was causing so much friction in our sales process to sell like a $10,000 website. And then we were having to pay like, you know, $1,500 in legal fees just to do the back and forth uh, review of a contract to, to kind of simplifying that down into some basic like scope of work type stuff. But like, what's what's like best practices coming from a lawyer? I mean, for our listeners, I mean, what what amount of contract is, is enough for them to have? I mean, any kind of insights or advice, non-legal binding advice that you can give our listeners around what types of things they should have on the front end of their business to protect themselves? Sure. Um, and one of the, the big things that we live by here at Reblaw, one of our core values is to make legal things simple. A lot of, a lot of contracts are too complicated. Because of the way lawyers are trained, uh, we draft contracts that are very complicated, unfriendly, and that most people wouldn't, wouldn't sign and shouldn't sign. And so we started doing that differently here. And so what we try to do is make it as simple as possible while still covering the bases that have to be covered and make it something friendly that people want to do business with. I like a two-page contract. Four pages is about the max. You know, there's some deals that are big enough that it it makes sense to have longer ones. I mean, if you're if you're doing a merger or acquisition, if you're buying a company, you may have to have a longer agreement. But most transactions um, that your listeners are doing can be handled in a in a two or four-page agreement. And what I really like to see is a scope of work on the front page with a terms and conditions on the back. Uh, that we can turn from a, an offer to do business or a bid or estimate right into a contract. So that it's very easy for whoever's trying to sell that service. So like a one page, like contract on the front, terms and conditions on yep. the back of that, that page? That's what I like. Okay. It's, uh, it's, how we, it's how we do most of our contracts with all of our clients and try to um, set them up for them in their business because the idea is to make money. And so the easier we can do that, the better we just want to make sure we're covering those bases and we can do that in the standard terms of conditions, you know, which can be in pretty small print. You can even put them, um, especially if you're in the digital space already on your website and have them referred to in the agreement. And they're just, a, they're saying that they've read them. You may even be doing it digitally on your, on your website, but you just want to make sure you're documenting clearly uh, a few things in my book, the eight questions to eliminate signage remorse. We go through eight things that, you should make sure in every contract, right? One of them is you want to make sure you have the right parties. 
So if, if you're doing a deal with anyone, you want to make sure that if it's with the person, you have their legal name. If it's with a company, you have the company's legal name and you might have to check their birth certificate, which would be their certificate of formation or articles of organization. Make sure those are right and that it's a um, active company and get that you know, at the top of your contract. And then the next thing you want to focus on are dollars. You know, it's all about dollars. So you want to make sure that all the dollars are correct and that if it's you paying, that you can afford to pay it. If it's you being paid, that it's the right amount. And then the next thing I would always want to look at is the dates. You want to make sure that the contract has dates and that the dates for deadlines for performance, right? What you have to do when and what they have to do when. And so you want to highlight those dates and make sure that on your side, they're all realistic dates that you can that you can do and that if the other side performs on the dates that they're supposed to, that you'll be happy. If you do those three things, you're a long way into having a good scope of work with some good terms in it that will be enforceable. You mentioned your uh, to make sure you have the right parties and make sure that, that you have their legal name. I mean, mm-hmm. what if something small like this is messed up? Maybe you just kind of say the name of the business versus the legal name, like whether they're an LLC or, you know, they're a DBA of a different name. I mean, you know, let's say just that one little thing, for whatever reason, you go quick and dirty in the sales process or in the, you know, the the onboarding setup of the client in your system and setting these contracts up. If you get that little thing wrong, I mean, what, what kind of risk is there for, for that, for the business? You know, there's, there's risk that you could, uh, if you had to go to court, that it wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to prove up the contract. If you, um, if you have the right company, but you've named it wrong, you'll be okay. If for some reason you've named the completely wrong company, that would be a mistake that we wouldn't be able to get over. And so that's why it's just real important to, to go back to documents. Uh, if you have to, you have to then provide them. Most uh, state secretary of state's offices have online databases that you can search and make sure you have the right names. And then it's also really important to make sure you're not putting the individual's names if you're doing business with their business. You um, you want to make sure you've got the, the right thing there. And for you, as a if you're an agency owner, you want to make sure that you're using your corporate name. I say that generically could be a corporation or LLC and your title, not your personal name, because you don't want to be personally liable for the agreement. And if you put your name on there, you will be. <laughs> so even something as simple as that of, you know, not having your legal name on there and, and just putting your name, I mean, even something as simple as that could cause could cause problems. Now, you, know, you said if it goes to court, which is, I, I always feel like, you know, everything must have gotten completely upside down for that to happen. Now, that's probably why we have contracts, right? I mean, that's one reason to protect us or to be able to assert certain things in the legal structure. And maybe we kind of come back to like what happens if things get that bad. But you mentioned three things. So the right right parties, the dollars are correct, the dates are correct. I mean, your book obviously has, has eight of these things uh, that we want to get right. Is there anything else that would be very specific to like agency owners? We're building something, we're delivering something to a client. There's some kind of service being provided uh, around like liability. And that comes up for a lot of our, 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 our clients, right? Of like, what kind of liability do they have if they're building a website or doing digital marketing? Like what if they don't get their client results, but they deliver the scope of work? I mean, are there things like that that you see like standard provisions for that you can shed insight to? Sure. A couple of things that as a digital agency you'd want to really watch out for is you want to make sure that you're not guaranteeing success. So one of the things in contracts, it's almost more important to, to say what the customer's not getting as to what they are getting. 
So if there's something they're not getting, you want to make that very clear. So if they're not getting a guarantee that they're going to get a certain number of leads or a certain number of sales from what you're doing for them, you want to make sure it says that very clearly. And I might even have them initial next to that paragraph. The other thing that you need to watch out for is who owns the intellectual property that you're creating, right? So if you're doing digital, uh, digital things, websites, um, possibly creating ads, running campaigns, creating funnels, who owns the intellectual property, right? Everything you create is automatically copyrighted under the common law whether you register it or not. So that who owns it? Does the customer own it uh, or does the agency own it? And that's an important thing to make clear in the contract so that at the end of the contract, there's not a dispute over who owns the content of that website. Now, you know, some digital agencies say that they, they, they own the website and when you end the relationship with them, you have to go get a new website. That's fine as long as it's very clear in the contract and everyone knows it goes in with their eyes wide open. But those are two areas that are really big uh, for digital agencies. The other is you want to probably put a limitations uh, clause in there that says kind of the limitations of the remedies, that you're not not responsible for them going out of business if the campaigns don't work. So you would have some real limitations on what, you know, what the worst case scenario would be if this contract were not to go south. You mentioned about the intellectual property, and I definitely want to talk about this because if you aren't calling specific attention to that, you mentioned that uh, that material is copyrighted via common law. So let's say you have a proposal or a terms right now as a digital agency, they're listening to this, they're on a, a run or they're on their, uh, their bike or in the car and they're thinking to themselves, I don't know, do I define who owns the intellectual property in my terms? Right? Like maybe they're freaking out right now. What, what is covered? What is, what is the default, I guess, is, is kind of my core question there. I'm sure it varies by state, but like what's a typical or what's something that you might find in, in, in a typical state? You know, the default would be that the person hiring you to do the work would own it. So if the, the client would have the, the initial copyright, unless you say otherwise. And so that's, it's, you know, either way is fine. It's just you want to be clear. Yeah. So that's just one of one of the things uh, in this space that you want to make sure is very clear. It's what we kind of call a work for hire clause that that it's clear who owns it. And to some customers or clients, that's really important. Um, they want to know that it, that if this relationship doesn't work out, they're not going to lose everything that you've created, right? And so just make that really clear. That can be a part of your um, your selling proposition that if you honor if you complete the contract with us, that everything that we've created is yours. So that's a good investment. But I, I do see a lot of um, agencies because I deal with agencies for our firm that work the opposite and they, they maintain control of that copyright. Well, let's say a contract ends up, and I've heard this from people uh, a lot, where they get hired to do a job for whatever reason. The client says, you know, you're, I don't like what you're producing, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and they, you know, they kind of pull out of the deal and then they take that work or they demand the work that's been completed up to that point. Uh, and they want to use that with another provider. If if the full scope has not been executed, I mean, is that still work for hire? Is it a case by case basis? Um, you know, what leverage does a agency have over that creative that they produce for an incomplete contract? Well, you have quite a bit of leverage because you'll you'll own control probably by password protection of, of, of all the content that you've created, and so you, that's where you go back to the contract. I like to say contracts keep honest people honest. And so you then go back to the agreement, show them the paragraph that they initialed saying that until they have fulfilled the entire contract, paid every dollar and cent that they owe on the contract to you, you own the copyright. Upon the last payment, 
then you would transfer all of that to them. So it's got to be very clear and you just walk them back through what, what you started in the first place. And it's a really good practice uh, when you're entering into the relationship, not to just send them a contract and them sign it and not understand what they're doing. That happens a lot, right? They thought the, this sounds like a good deal. You sound really talented. You've promised some really good value. I'll sign. And they sign it and, I, and then they get disillusioned. Instead, you want to walk them through the important parts of the contract either as they're signing it or before they sign it so that you can then remind them of that conversation and how, how you drew attention to that. You might even do it with a screen recording and send that screen recording to them with the agreement that walks them through it. So you have proof that you walk them through it. Uh, you've been very careful to point out those, the specific things that we're talking about with the work for hire clause or however we've worded that so that then it's just a reminder. We're not, we're not calling them a liar. We're not getting into an argument. We're just reminding them of what the agreement said. Mm, I like that, being able to remind them. You, you, you mentioned the, the initializing important points. Uh, is, is, does that, is that more for just clear communication to make sure this does not end up going to court? Or is there additional legal, you know, I mean, I, I assume if I have a six-page contract and at the end of that contract, you sign it that you have agreed to said terms, but obviously I've, I've signed enough paperwork in my life to know that a lot of times you got an initial. So what's, what's the legal kind of theory or basis behind initialing parts of a contract while you're also signing it? Well, what, one of them is that what we just talked about, you want to make sure you're pointing out the, some of the really important parts of the agreement and having them, having them do that by showing they've read it by putting their initials. It's much more likely they've read it if they initial it. We all know we've, we've initialed things we haven't read, but it's more likely <laughs> Um, and then if they were to go into court and try to say that they hadn't read it, they just look kind of foolish, um, having, you know, showing all these initials all the way through the document. And then they say, well, I didn't read it. Well, that, that's bad on you. And so it's not, if, if you sign the contract at the end, that's all you need to make it binding. It's just, it's just more proof that they understood what they were doing when they signed it. And so that helps you if you ever get to that point where you're putting this in front of a judge or jury to make it very understandable that they had, they knew what they were signing. Hey, what's up podcast listeners. Are you a web agency or freelance web designer that's trying to add recurring revenue profits by offering your clients SEO services? Well, I've got good news for you. There's a new service that is basically the design pickle for white label SEO. Their team hooks you up with unlimited SEO tasks for one monthly fee. You got to check them out at seobrothers.co forward slash you gurus. They're giving our listeners 50% off their first month and an awesome money-back guarantee. That's seobrothers.co forward slash you gurus. All right, let's get back to our interview. One thing you mentioned was not guaranteeing success. If, if I'm a marketing company, I'm going to probably in the sales process or in the discovery process, talk about objectives, goals, things that we are attempting to get, results that we are trying to achieve for our client. Now, I might be a little bit more specific in terms of my scope of work to say, you know, we are going to be managing Facebook ads, we are going to be doing this, this, and this. And I might not want to really put those same results into that scope to guarantee, as you mentioned. Uh, so how do we walk that line between still wanting to talk about the results, the goals of the relationship, but also protecting ourselves to make that not be a binding thing. I'd, I'd hate to have a, you know, Facebook ads client for 
12 months for five grand a month. And after 12 months of, of service, they say, well, you didn't get us results. I want all my money back, you know, which, which obviously getting results on Facebook isn't, isn't guaranteed by anybody. Uh, so what, what, what advice can you give to our listeners about how to have conversations about results, how to have conversations about goals, but without making that to be part of the legal binding agreement? Yeah, that's a great, and we do that here as well. So, if, especially if it's litigation, we're talking about what are what are the goals. We're probably writing them up on a, a big whiteboard, but those never end up in the written document. And a contract is there's a, a a doctrine in law called the four corners rule. The only thing that matters is what's within the four corners of this written document. It doesn't matter what was said to you. It, uh, that's uh, that's sales language, sales puffery. If it's not in the contract, uh, if you're a buyer then if it's important, you need to ask for them to put it in the contract. As the seller or the agency, then you want to make sure you're eliminating those things. And I would probably even have a line in the contract that specifically excludes anything that isn't in this agreement. So anything we talked about outside of this agreement is not part of this deal. Because you may have talked about several different options uh, for this client, uh, different campaigns you could do for them before you actually got to the one that they decided on. And they may have decided on one that wasn't your best campaign. You may have had a better recommendation and they've taken this one. So you want to make sure that the only thing that matters is what's in the four corners of the doc- document and you have a clause in the contract or in your standard terms and conditions, at least, that says that and makes it very clear to them that nothing outside of this paper is going to ever come into this deal. Would you go as far as also, because earlier you mentioned it's it's both about having what they are getting and what they're not getting. Would you recommend to go as far as saying, you know, basically a, a release of guarantee that we have, you know, we provide no guarantees of the results of said work? Or do you feel like it's, you know, it's enough just to not include that? No, it should have a specific line in your contract. And we do that in every one of our deals that says we do not, we do not guarantee the results. We can't. All we can do is guarantee that we'll do the work according to the scope and the results kind of are what they are. And so you have to have a very clear statement of that. And that's one of those that you'd want them to initial. I love that, the the four corners rule. And, and also just for people to really focus on, on, on what is being said in the written agreement and also to review that uh, with your client, either through a video or in person or having them, uh, you know, provide those, um, those signatures and things like that. So we've talked about the front end, the sales side, I, I'm sure, uh, you've got your book, you've got, I'm sure there's courses on, on how to, to do this and how to build these types of agreements. Um, I, I want to spend the rest of our kind of interview time talking more about the internal part of an agency, because we have employees, we have contractors, we have people that we give access to things like our, you know, our clients data and information and, you know, I've heard a lot of horror stories where somebody, you know, does something that's kind of crazy. Uh, so what are some things that you recommend agency owners have to protect themselves on the inside from from their own people and to make sure that they have the right structures in place regarding like, you know, non-disclosures or non-competes, things like that? Yeah, you need to have all those things for all of your uh, employees. When it gets really difficult is when you're using subcontractors, which I know a lot of a lot of agencies and listeners are. So you, you want to have very clear documents that say what that define what you consider to be confidential information and how it's supposed to be treated. You want to have non-disclosure agreements so that uh, in places they can't uh, use your stuff. You want to have also what we would call a non-utilization agreement, which can be part of the non-disclosure that they won't use anything. It may be that you've got a very specialized 
type of funnel uh, that you've created in your digital agency that everyone else doesn't have. You don't want them to be able to go use it for their benefit later. And so even after maybe a non-compete would uh, go away and, you know, non-competes aren't available in every state. So you have to be careful and make sure that you know the law in your state and that you craft it very carefully, but you want to have that language if you can. And non-competes need to be reasonable. They need to always have a reasonable geography uh, limit. You know, miles is usually, you know, 20 miles or less is always uh, seem to be reasonable in the court's eyes. You want to have a scope of what the job is they can't do so that it's very under- easy to understand for a court as to what you're trying to limit. And then you want to have a very narrow time, you know, one or two years, three years probably is the max on a non-compete in a state. If you don't have non-competes, then you want to use non-solicitations uh, so that they can't solicit your employees, they can't solicit your uh, customers, they can't solicit your social media uh, contacts, right? Because those are huge and have them sign those. And it's just like all the other contracts we've talked about. You want to make sure you're drawing attention to the important things that you're walking them through it as part of your onboarding process. And it's not just you know, an exercise of them just signing a bunch of documents. These are important. You need to draw attention to it, make a big deal out of it, and then probably remind people uh, at least on an annual basis about the commitments that they've made to the company so that they don't forget. Because some people could actually forget and violate some of those unintentionally. And so you want to make sure that everyone has a reminder of what they've committed to. We just had an agency owner on our show, gosh, it wasn't, but a few episodes ago, uh, Joanna Gal- Galveo. And, and she was talking about a situation where she had some team members. Now, she, she's not based in the U.S., but she had some team members that worked for her. And uh, they did end up splitting off because they got kind of, they felt like, you know, as non-business owners, they weren't making enough money in the business. Um, and they decided to go out and start soliciting some of her clients. Now, mm, those people had ethics and a reasonable sense about them and kind of realized what was going on. And they didn't really, you know, they didn't jump ship necessarily. But we've, we've seen this a lot where somebody does leave a company and they choose to solicit clients or other team members. You mentioned non-solicitation. I mean, what what's the reality behind this? I mean, let's say somebody does leave a company and then goes and solicits that company for business. I mean, those companies are out there. I mean, their their information is public. I mean, what what is really stopping? Like, what's the legal parameters or limits that says that this is what non-solicitation is and isn't? And, and how can that ever be, like, proven or really enforced? Well, no, solicitation is, is defined, and it's going to be when that employee or former employee reaches out in person to a known customer of his former employer and invites them to come do business with him. If the former customer follows them over there without a solicita- without an invitation, that's not solicitation. It also could be that the new employee, new employer starts using that information to reach out, and that would be seen as a, as a solicitation. It's, uh, it's, it can be enforced. The real deal with non-competes and solicitations is, non-solicitations is you should, if you're going to have them, you, you need to be able to afford to enforce them. Right. So if someone violates it and you don't do anything, then it just tells everyone else there that you don't care and aren't going to enforce them. And so then it's open season uh, on you and your customers. So you have to have a war chest set aside so that, you know, you can take someone to court, get a temporary restraining order or temporary injunction to stop them from contacting your client base and then try to work something out. Right. No one 
trials are only good for lawyers, but you need litigation sometimes to stop that bleeding, right? If you've got 50 clients and they've already called 10 of them and that you, and you start losing some, you have to do something quickly. So you're going to have to have five, $10,000 on hand to get to a litigation lawyer who can stop them. If you don't have that, there's really not much use in having the non-competes and non-solicitations because you can't afford to enforce them. Mm. Let's talk about enforcing stuff, whether it be with clients or team members or contractors going to court, or as, as you mentioned, just at least going to the courts and getting a, some kind of injunction or some kind mm-hmm. of restraint on, put on that. I mean, is that... I, I, I've gotten conflicting legal advice and also advice from other entrepreneurs. One of our very first podcast episodes was uh, a gentleman who you know ended up taking a client to bat, and they spent you know well into the six figures on litigation. And at the end of the day, they didn't end up collecting anything because the business either went out of business or they you know somehow skirted having to pay it. And I think the only person that really people that won in that situation, as the saying goes, were the lawyers. You know, I mean, how how do you? How do you manage that decision, I guess, as a business owner? Uh, I think most lawyers would say probably you should enforce and pursue if, if you have the funds to, to do it and if it makes sense. But, but yeah, how do, you, how do you make that call, whether just to kind of cut, cut your losses and walk away versus enforcing that and kind of spending that war chest, as you mentioned? Well, I think you have to look at the amount of damage that you think that employee could do if they continue the solicitation or, not, or competition. You know, if it's very minimal, uh, you know, I'm sure your listeners are aware of the lifetime value of their clients. So they know what it will cost them if they lose five or 10 of those clients to someone that leaves. They already know those numbers. You know, in my in my mind, if it's if it's going to cost you more than twenty or $30,000 in the first year, that's something that you should consider stopping. You also have to make really, really sure that the litigation counsel you have is really interested in helping you stop it not just litigate, uh, just litigate for the fun of litigating, because uh, you know there's a there's kind of a saying that litigators litigate, surgeons cut. It's just one of those things, and so you want to make sure that you've got goals and expectations of we're going to try to get this injunction, and once we can stop the bleeding, then the idea is to try to work something out, not take this to trial. The the win isn't a judgment against this person. A win is stopping them from hurting you. And be able to then go back to the, to your workplace and say we worked something out with them, we reached a confidential settlement, but we don't tolerate this kind of behavior. You know, it's the it's the landslide that could happen if you don't enforce it. So you you have to have the right goal and goal and strategy in place. Otherwise, it will just take on a life of its own. Lawyers will make all the money that they can make on your case, and you will end up with a piece of paper at the end that's suitable for ju- for framing. And, you know, we call that a judgment. So every judgment isn't not collectible, but most of them are. If your employee leaves, uh, they're personally liable to you for violating that. They probably are judgment-proof. So you have to stop them quickly and then and get them into a settlement agreement. But the goal should never be to take it all the way to trial. That's a bad strategy for these kind of cases. Interesting. And I, I like that. I mean, that focus of just saying that the the using the legal system or using lawyers in these cases is more about, you know, stopping the bad behavior, not necessarily, you know, getting some kind of damages or getting your, your money back or whatever. So let's say with a client, though, let's say let's kind of turn the tables here with a couple minutes left. If, if a client threatens legal action, 
And and I know that in, in the past when this, you know, a, on a long enough time period, you work with enough clients, enough projects. I mean, we, we did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of projects at our agency. And on a long enough timeline, it, it you know, even with the best intentions, somebody gets upset and they say, oh, we're going to sue you. I mean, what's kind of, you know, I kind of had a practice of, well, whoa, hold on. We should probably, you know, if, we, if you're going to say that, then we might need to stop communicating or maybe we need to like put things in writing. I mean, what are, let's say if a, if a client is upset or wants to bring a suit or brings up the, the lawsuit or sue uh, words, what, what are things that we should do as agency owners to kind of either reconcile or, or find the right path forward? As soon as there's a threat of litigation, even if it's not a formal demand, you should involve your uh, legal counsel. And you have to have legal counsel on hand before that comes. If you have to if you have to Google them, ask your friends for referrals, make an appointment two weeks out, by the time you do all that, it's probably too late. So you need to have a relationship in place. And so you want to contact them, let them know what's going on, let them advise you through the process. But the idea is always to try to find a way to stop the litigation. Um, you mentioned earlier that, you know, it's only good for lawyers. I, I like to say that uh, our our legal system is one of the best in the world, but it really is like a roach motel. And once you get in, it can be hard to get out. So you're much better off making a settlement beforehand that is distasteful. You don't like it, but it keeps you out of court. Uh, if you can somehow salvage the relationship too, that would be great. But the main thing is to keep you out of court because there's a huge emotional cost to litigating, a uh, huge loss of productivity. There's just a distraction of it, and it lasts forever. Now, if you take a case all the way to trial in our system, it's easily up to two years of your time and focus. And you think you can put it out of your head, but I mean, I was on the phone just the other day with a client that was in this situation, and we finally resolved it. And they're like, I can finally stop thinking about it. Even on vacation, they were thinking about it. It's just always there, kind of bothering you. And so it's just avoid it. So you get the lawyer involved early. Uh, they can advise you on what you can and can't say. And if, and if necessary, what we do a lot is just jump in and say, hey, uh, hey, we're general counsel for these guys, and we really want to try to work this out and, and just find a way to resolve it for them. Our goal is to avoid litigation uh, at all costs, other than what we've talked about with trying to, if you have to stop the bleeding on someone un- unfairly competing with you. That's interesting that, you know, I mean, yes, up to two years. I mean, that the story that uh, uh, Keith Roberts shared with us on one of the very, very first episodes of the Digital Agency Show, uh, I think it was, I can't remember the numbers. It was it was multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars and it was multiple years. And the result at the end of it, it was just, a, it was a really hard lesson. And, uh, and so I think that that's, you know, that's really good advice from today is if you could just avoid that hard lesson uh, by resolving it or even making a settlement or something that feels a little bit uncomfortable, maybe even unprincipled or something like that on the front end mm-hmm. might be, might be a better position to take than let's go to court. Yeah, and if you're gonna if you're gonna hire a lawyer or a law firm and pay them money to give you advice, then follow their advice. So if they're telling you to walk away from this, walk away. It's in their best interest to move forward with it. They'll make more money. So if a lawyer's telling you you need to resolve something, <laughs> then listen to them and resolve it. No one, no one I know that, or that I'm friends with can afford to litigate over principle, right? Mm. You would have to be a multimillionaire, in my opinion, to litigate over the principle of things. You, you have to make business decisions uh, about this stuff. If it doesn't make business sense to move forward, you don't move forward. 
Well, Scott, this has been a fascinating conversation. I think we've kind of surfed through a few different topics around uh, employment and contract and kind of the what-if scenarios if things do uh, hit the fan uh, in one way or another. Uh, So this has been super fascinating. Uh, Scott, are you ready for our lightning round? Let's do it. All right. What is the best advice you've ever received? Uh, The best advice I ever received was... uh, I'm trying to think, one of my mentors gave it to me probably two decades ago, but uh, I have two ears and one mouth, and in business situations and in life, uh, I, should be, I should talk less. The, and so I've learned to be really quiet in meetings and listen and find, uh, find the moment to look brilliant, uh, not open my mouth and, and reveal that I don't know what's going on. And that's really served me well over the last 20 plus years. Uh, I used to be very talkative and want to be the person that jumped in and tried to know everything. And by just being quiet and listening, you can really learn a lot about where someone's coming from and maybe understand the problem better than you did initially and be a lot smarter when you finally enter the conversation. Which of your personal habits has contributed most to your success? I think it's the personal habit uh, of planning my schedule ahead of time. If you will take the time the night before, and I'm not, I don't do this as much as I probably should, but when I do it, when I take that time to plan my day ahead of, ahead of schedule and block off times for certain activities and then uh, be pretty inflexible, pretty rigid about it, I tend to be a lot more productive than when I show up and just let the day happen. Um, and I have those days, but the days where I am most productive is when I've pre-planned it the night or day before and show up and work the plan. Can you share an internet resource, a tool, or an app that you use on a regular basis that you think our listeners would find valuable? Yeah, and it's one we kind of mentioned how to use, I think, Loom. Using Loom, though, it's the Chrome plugin that you can use to make the web videos to explain your proposals, to explain your contracts, to do all kinds of things. It's just a really cool tool. It's very intuitive and easy to use. Even my, uh, Even my dad who works for us, who's in his 70s, is able to quickly use that. Uh, Not that 70s and people in their 70s can't do that, but it's very intuitive uh, and all my team can use those things. And what book would you recommend besides your own and why? Uh, Get a Grip, uh, Gino Pirelli, uh, and I guess The Companion Traction. Reading that that allegory on, on the entrepreneurial journey and the difference between the visionary and the integrator and how you have to have both of those in a business has really changed how I look at it. And I consider myself to be a legal coach. And so we are coaching our clients through all kinds of problems. And sometimes it's not, not a law problem. Sometimes they have a business problem. And so we also do business coaching. And that book has had a real big influence on the advice I give to our entrepreneurial clients. We are definitely big fans of Gino and Traction and Get a Grip and all their books over there at Entrepreneurial Operating System. So we'll link mm-hmm. out to those uh, in our show notes. So if you guys haven't uh, checked those out yet for our show, go to yougurus.com forward slash podcast if you're out there on a run or on the road. Again, that's yougurus.com forward slash podcast. You'll see Scott Reeb's episode right there at the top. Click on that guy and you'll find lots of links to today's resources and great stuff. Uh, Scott, how can our audience find out more about you? Is there anything that you have that they can check out? Sure. If you'll, if you'll go to reblaw.com, R-E-I-B-L-A-W.com forward slash digital agency, 
then we have a special uh, deal for you. You will you can download my five proven strategies to shatterproof your business, uh, the ebook, and you can do a fifteen minute what I would call lightning laser legal coaching session uh, with me, so that we can kind of get down to the ditty gritty with your business and see if there's any any holes that I can spot easily and try to give you some suggestions on how you can uh, make your business better from a legal perspective. Awesome. Well, those are great resources, and that's a that's a pretty great uh, free offer in terms of uh, our listeners being able to get a 15-minute consult to ask some of their burning legal questions or maybe focused question with uh, somebody that gets it on the law side, can help protect their businesses. So thanks for offering that up to our folks, Scott. Really appreciate you being on the show today. That's been great, Brent. I really appreciate you having me. And you guys can find out more information about today's episode and all those links as mentioned earlier at our show notes page, yougurus.com forward slash podcast. That is our program for this week of the Digital Agency Show. Stay tuned each and every week for more great content coming to you to help you grow your digital agency so you can achieve freedom in your business and life. Until next time, I'm Brent Weaver. Thanks again for tuning in to the Digital Agency Show. Before we close out, I wanted to check in on your answer to my question from the beginning of the episode. Are you stressed out, cash crunched, fed up with your business? Now, if you feel this way, you might think that you have a lead generation problem. Maybe that it's the area you live in or that this market has gotten too competitive. Maybe you think that your business can't be turned around. And I want you to think again. In my many years of experience, I can tell you now it's something much deeper that you're likely not even aware of yet. It's like a client who says they need a website, Facebook ads, or a mobile app when they don't even realize it's a deeper challenge that's blocking them from success. Now, if you'd like to find out what your deeper challenge is, then I want to invite you to apply for a strategy call where we're going to dig into those underlying issues in your business and get you moving forward like never before. The aha moments that you're going to have will shift the way you think forever, and you'll finally get the answers as to why your business hasn't taken off. The number one most important decision to rapidly grow your business starts by booking your YouGurus strategy call today. Go to yougurus.com slash apply to start the application process for this free call. Once again, go to yougurus.com slash apply to get started. Thanks again for tuning in. Join us next week for another episode of the Digital Agency Show.